I'm Tanya Kerson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. We're kicking off the new year with an important conversation with Alicia Galvez about her new book, Eating NAFTA, Trade, Food Policies, and the Destruction of Mexico. This is a book that couldn't come at a better time. We've been hearing a lot about Mexico, immigration, and trade policies in the news recently, but so much of it lacks the context to actually help us make sense of what's going on. At the same time, there seems to be a boom in the appreciation for Mexican cuisine, with celebrity chefs, upscale restaurants, and food reality shows praising the art of traditional Mexican peasant foods like the humble tortilla. But as this book describes, for a lot of Mexicans, tortillas and other traditional foods have actually been replaced by processed foods, leading to a national health crisis and the highest rates of obesity in the world, even higher than in the United States. For our guest today, this paradox is not a coincidence. It's the logical outcome of policies like the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA. Alicia Galvez is professor of Latin American Studies and Latino Studies at Lehman College of the City University of New York. Alicia, welcome to Real Food Reads. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So, Alicia, one of the threads in your book that I found really fascinating is something that we talk about a lot at Real Food Media, which is the power of stories. Basically, Mm -hmm. who has the power to shape the dominant narrative about things that affect our everyday lives? And it occurred to me that even the title of your book flips the script on a story we've been hearing over the last couple of years, especially from the Trump administration, which is that trade agreements have been unfair to the United States. I won't try to do my Trump impersonation, um, but (laughs) (laughs) trade agreements have been unfair to the United States while every other country has benefited, basically. So are you encountering these kinds of perceptions or confusion about who the quote-unquote winners and losers of NAFTA are? Yes, these are really powerful ideas that are circulating in our society. And I think when you when you say those words, you know, we can all kind of imagine Trump's voice playing in our heads, whether we want <laughs> to or not. But, you know, Bernie Sanders also had a very strong anti-NAFTA, anti-globalization, anti-trade Um, critique at the heart of his campaign. And so in some ways, they both kind of run in different directions, one to the right and one to the left, and they kind of meet in the middle, because they, they both frame the United States as as being at a disadvantage as a result of trade. But the problem with that is that it overlooks the reality, which is that it's working people, it's all the all of us who aren't billionaires that are really being victimized by these trade deals and by the current configuration of our economic policy and our food policy. And so people in Mexico who are not billionaires, as well as people in the United States who are not billionaires, are both seeing, in Canada too, it's a, it's a three-nation agreement, are seeing the negative consequences of these deals. And the story that we're being told when you talk about storytelling, the story we're being told is not only about this kind of winners and losers that's oversimplifying, um, that's kind of framing, you know, the United States, which is still, you know, the wealthiest nation in the history of the world is somehow losing. But it's also, it's a story that corporations are peddling because corporations want us to think 
you know, that somehow this is, you know, the current inequalities, the growth of inequalities and the growth of, you know, public health consequences that are a result of these deals are somehow, you know, the fault of others, the fault of immigrants, and that they aren't the result of policies that uh, and choices that have been made about what to prioritize. Right. And I, I think you make an important point about, you know, who's really losing from these trade agreements, which is, you know, not the sort of zero sum game that we're taught to think that it's either the U.S. is winning or the U.S. is losing, but rather that it's working people and marginalized people everywhere are losing from these exactly. trade agreements. Exactly. And that's because we're not at the table. You know, we're not at the table when these things are decided. Our interests are not being forcefully um, inserted into the conversation. Corporations do get their interests heard. But average people who are trying to make our way, you know, in a changing landscape of, of economic opportunities and food choices, the, the realities that we face are not really entering into the conversation. And so by the same token, we don't think that trade negotiations have anything to do with us, um, but they affect all of us very, very directly. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, I, I wonder, so as we're talking about, you know, who is, who's at the table and who's not, um, are there also ways in which U.S. consumers and the U.S. Um, has actually benefited from NAFTA? Um, I think, you know, there are ways that, you know, we take for granted, for example, access yeah. to, uh, you know, the, the counter seasonal produce all year round, like avocados and berries and tomatoes, which, which hasn't always been the case, right? Yep. I had an avocado with lime squeezed on it with my lunch today, and that would not have been possible in December in New York City without NAFTA. There you um, go. Globalized trade, you know, brings fresh food and produce within reach, makes it affordable, makes it available all year round, no matter what climate we live in. You know, these are great things that are, you know, benefit, a benefit to our health. You know, my, my, the rainbow that I'm able to eat is certainly a product of, of globalized trade because here in New York, you know, the farmer's market this time of year has, you know, a few apples left and some squash and potatoes and that's about it. So, you know, we, we do benefit um, in the United States, but we also, one thing we don't realize is the way that all of these things are interrelated. And so we don't really connect the dots in terms of how immigration is related to trade and, and economic policy, how the food system is completely shaped by factors that include labor costs, immigration, um, trade and corporate interests, the consolidation of these massive um, industrial farms that are growing much of the produce that we consume. Right. And by the same token, we don't know, you know, how the decisions that we make when we go to the polls in the United States to elect our elected representatives, we don't realize that those elected representatives are not only going to be making decisions that it can affect our own health and well-being and, and financial prosperity, but they're rippling out all across the hemisphere. And so I'm not sure our, you know, definition of democracy is quite big enough to account for that incredible power that the U.S. wields. Um, in the region as far as these economic policies. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's one of the takeaways of your, your book for me is that when we talk about democracy, we need to broaden that and, and actually think globally and think about the in international repercussions of the, the, the folks we elect and the, the policies they enact. Getting back to this, I mean, I just, I find your title so so compelling. You know, when I first read it, I, it 
struck me as somewhat hyperbolic, um, you know, talking about <laughs> NAFTA and the destruction of Mexico. Like, isn't yeah. isn't that a bit bit dramatic? But of course, the the picture you paint is is a quite devastating one. And I, I thought we could maybe walk through a little bit of the the historical context because one thing that I found so striking in your analysis is that traditional ways of growing, preparing, and eating food in Mexico that survived really the extreme violence of the European conquest, that survived yeah. colonialism and industrialization and urbanization, though, of course, evolving and changing over time, but that these foodways right. may not survive the NAFTA or the neoliberal era. And, you know, I think this really points to how violent NAFTA actually has been, and I don't think most people would would see it as you know on par, say, with with the Spanish conquest. Absolutely, thank you for summarizing it so powerfully. <laughs> I think you put it better than I do. Yes, it's true. I mean, there is a violence to it, and when I was titling the book, there was a certain aspect. You know, I'm glad that it you know caught your eye <laughs> when sure. you saw the title <laughs> of the book, and I do hope that people read the book because I think that. I think that I'm connecting the dots on issues that, that most of us don't stop and think about, even those of us who are really embedded in, in thinking about food justice Absolutely. and the food system and food sovereignty every day. We don't necessarily think about the issues in the way that I try to connect them in the book, the way that I was compelled to connect them after I dove into the research. So in that sense, you know, there's a little bit of hyperbole there for sure, but But I agree with you that it's also not hyperbolic in the sense that there is a destruction of ways of life that is unprecedented, that is accompanying these trade decisions, um, and that is not being acknowledged because so much of the neoliberal era is about shifting onto the market things that don't historically belong to the the realm of, of market factors and that market dynamics, a lot of these things sort of get seen as kind of unintended consequences of their collateral damage. Um, and I'm really trying to push the notion that these are things that are possible to see, to connect causally, and a different way is possible if we make different choices politically, economically, socially, and as consumers, although I think that that has less weight than than it's often given. And so to be more specific, you know, if we're looking at what is called milpa-based cuisine, which is Mm. the historically corn-centered diet of Mesoamerican people. And so the Mesoamerican diet and settlement into agrarian communities is based on the cultivation of corn. And so the milpa is where the corn is grown. But historically, it was intercropped. So it was corn, squash, and beans that were the typical three sisters that's sometimes referred to in English mm-hmm. um, that would be intercropped together. And together, they, they create a biodiversity that's quite sustainable pretty much indefinitely. The, the replenishment of the soil, of the nutrients in the soil, um, even the way the plants hold each other up physically um, and prevent you know, wind damage and, and erosion is notable. And together, those three food products, corn, beans, and squash, provide a pretty much complete diet. And they would be accompanied, of course, by, you know, chiles and tomatoes and and other um, 
products as well as a small amount of animal products. But this was really the core of the diet. And this was something that lasted really for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the Spanish brought, you know, wheat and lard and meat and milk, and that they had very strong ideas about how civilized people need to eat pork and (laughs) things like that, that really elevated, you know, for example, bread and meat into considerations of social status. So the higher the social status, the more urban someone was, the more money they had, the more uh, meat and dairy they would consume and the more bread. But we still see people, the vast majority of people in Mesoamerica having corn as their primary food staple all through the colonial period and really up into the 20th century through through most of the 20th century. It's only with NAFTA that we really see a dramatic threat to that to that way of life, to that way of cultivating food, but also centering of corn in the diet. Mm. Um, and concurrently, as we see corn being cultivated less and consumed less, we see a rise in diet-related illness. We see diabetes, obesity, and other um, consequences as people are growing less of their food, consuming more processed foods, consuming more industrialized commodity corn in the form of corn syrup, corn starches, corn flours, and not so much their traditional applications of corn like uh, tortillas, tamales, lacoyos, etc. Yeah, and can you explain a little bit some of the, the specific mechanisms, like make the causal connection for us between the implementation of NAFTA and the erosion of milpa-based Cuisine. So I'm thinking, for example, you know, what happens around land loss and the, you know, dumping of uh, cheap U.S. corn. Like, can you describe that for us? Yeah. So, so the Mexican negotiators knew that they needed to do something to protect corn, even though they entered into the NAFTA negotiations wanting to modernize Mexico's economy and wanting to do so fast and wanting to do so dramatically. And really, they sought to convert Mexico's economy away from small-scale agriculture and towards manufacturing and more industrial industries. Um, Right. Like that was was their goal. I think that's one thing like a lot of people don't know. Exactly. They they meant to. That was their goal. Mm -hmm. They meant to do that. And they they meant to do that. They wanted people to transition. And they realized that that represented a a risk, right? That, that, that it would involve displacement, that it would involve some pain. Um, but they anticipated that 500,000 rural people would be displaced by NAFTA. <laughs> that, you have to multiply that number by 20 <laughs> in wow. order to reach the number of people who would be um, displaced in the first 10 years of NAFTA. Wow. 10% of the Mexican population comes to reside in the United States a decade by, by a decade after NAFTA is going into effect. That's just a mind-blowing statistic to me. It's mind-blowing. It's dark. It means family separation. It means, uh, and of course, there were no visas because NAFTA also did not include any provision for mobility of people. Um, We liberated the flow of goods and capital, but not people. And so even though there was an anticipated flow of migration that would occur as a result of NAFTA. The U.S. was unwilling to talk about visas or to talk about taking away uh, passport controls uh, the way Europe, for example, has in the European community where people can move. There's an economic 
community that's formed by the European nations and people can circulate between them and work between them. But Mm -hmm. we didn't in the United States want to discuss that as a possibility. And so people are displaced. And part of the reason they're displaced is there are many complicated factors. If we had a few hours, I could <laughs> I could summarize them. But just briefly, there was an intention to to somewhat ease the pain and slowly ramp down um, the emphasis on small scale agriculture and corn. And so corn, for example, was protected ostensibly in NAFTA for a certain number of years, and there would be a staged withdrawal of those protections because the United States insisted that Mexico get rid of its subsidies, protecting its corn industry as the pay to play to participate in NAFTA. Of course, notably, the United States didn't get rid of its subsidies, Mm -hmm. but Mexico was required to. And so these were intended to be staged in their expiration. But unfortunately, almost immediately, some of the policymakers were able to make a case that Mexico was, was going to face a, a problem. There was a drought in, the, in around the same time that NAFTA was signed. And there were some, some problems with, with cultivation of corn, with harvest and yield that year. And so um, almost immediately, there was an argument made that for Mexico's food security, it needed to lower some of these barriers to to U.S. corn coming in. And so almost immediately, the protections were kind of suspended and forgotten. And so the phase out was partial, but it really was superseded by this sort of diagnosis of Mexico as having a corn deficit. Mm. The problem with that diagnosis is that the U.S. can't give Mexico Mexican corn. The corn that people use for tortillas and, and tamales is not the corn that we grow in Iowa. And we have, you know, these massive yields per hectare with our massive factory farms. The different species of corn, um, the U.S. corn is, you know, one of two species that are that constitute 90-something percent of the corn cultivated in the United States. Um, and they're really suitable for, ag- for industrial purposes. So again, the syrups and starches, corn fillers and animal feed that, um, and now ethanol that use up most of that corn. And so Mexico kind of um, had a a threat to its, you know, heirloom varieties, land-race varieties of corn at the same time that it starts seeing this influx of industrial corn in the form of processed foods and and, and commodity grains. And so that puts even more pressure on the small-scale farmer, makes it even more unviable. At the same time, they took away all the supports that they used to have in terms of the matchmaking role that the government used to play in helping farmers get their product to, to urban markets um, to help stave off hunger in the cities and also sustain the small-scale agriculture. And so all of these things were sort of taken away, these protections of the small-scale corn industry. And this caused people to need to leave. They, they left their rural communities for the cities, and if they couldn't make it in the cities, they left for the United States. And at the same time, we see Walmart and OXO and 7-Eleven and, you know, lots of other, lots of um, industrial food producers inserting themselves into the rural markets in ways they never did before. Right. It's it's such a fa- fascinating and, and complex story. What you're describing is at the same time as the traditional corn growers are really losing their farms, so there's less of the the traditional corn production. There's uh, more of this imported um, yellow corn that's really only suitable for making industrial processed junk. And then there's more exactly. supermarkets and you know retailers uh, selling that processed junk. 
exactly to market it and distribute it further and further into the countryside. So places that were sort of left out of previous models of development suddenly are being courted by these distribution networks that are very robust. You know, the Coca-Cola truck makes it all the way to <laughs> the most rural remote oh, yeah. community to distribute, you know, those, those sodas and those snacks. Um, and so we see this, you know, kind of uh, complete um, ubiquity of, of processed foods, even in the most rural communities that sort of by their isolation, by their marginalization, were protected from that stuff previously, no longer are. Right. And so, you know, I, what you're describing is, is this, um, you know, this ubiquity of processed food, even, even in the, in the rural areas. And so I, I forget what the statistic is, but you talk about how, the decline in consumption of corn tortillas in, in Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the flip side of that, um, the sort of flip side of the coin is, of this, this devastation um, and these dietary changes and changes in the Mexican countryside is this sort of boom in, in the U S and in other parts of the world of, foreigners, um, you know, quote unquote, appreciating or profiting from mm-hmm. uh, Mexican food. And, uh, yeah. and this is something we often, you know, talk about as, as, you know, cultural appropriation is the term. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in, in reading your book, I realized that maybe this is, this is far too polite and, and we should probably just call it cultural theft because mm-hmm. uh, what we're, what we're talking about is a certain group of, of elite or affluent people deriving pleasure and wealth from something that those who created it no longer have. So that's, that's theft. (laughs) Do you, do you see it that way? It's a kind of piracy. It's a kind of plundering. Um, You know, it's, uh, it's what my mentor Renato Rosaldo calls imperialist nostalgia. Right. You know, the mourning that which you yourself have destroyed. (laughs) Um, you know, we're mourning and celebrating, um, you know, this, this, and sadly, you know, saying that people have not appreciated that they've not treasured, you know, this kind of millennial way of, of preparing and consuming food that um, is being, you know, lost to people. And then is it becomes available, it becomes available for this, this alchemy of quote unquote elevation, you know, by these top chefs who can claim to have discovered something or to, to appreciate something, to salvage something. Right. Um, as though they see no the value. Yeah. As though they see exactly. the value of something that, that native, you know, people for whom it's native to their culture did not recognize. Right. Exactly. Exactly. As, which is what, you know, kind of makes it available. Symbolically. Right. It, it, it justifies the prices, right. Cause if you're salvaging something that's, on on route to extinction, then you can charge whatever you want, right? But if everybody has access to fantastic tacos on hand-ground corn tortillas, then nobody can get away with charging those prices. Right, right, exactly. It's that sort of um, added symbolic value, I think, that you you describe in the book. Exactly. Yeah, along these lines, I actually wanted to share with you that a few years ago, I was living in Bolivia when the da- mm-hmm. the Danish chef Klaus Meyer opened a, a restaurant in an upscale neighborhood of La Paz with the aim of 
you know, quote, elevating Bolivian food and, and putting, oh putting Bolivian food on the map. So I was really interested to read your story about another Danish chef, Rene Redzepi, who's a close colleague of Klaus Meyer and his adventures in, in Mexican cuisine. Um, can you um, briefly talk about him and, and what that story tells us about yeah. food system change in Mexico? Yeah, so I think anyone who is as addicted to the food channel and food TV <laughs> and food writing as as I am um, can avoid knowing about Rene Vizepi. His restaurant Noma is credited with, you know, being so influential. Not only, you know, its accolades as one of the top restaurants in the world when it was uh, open, but it's but just the way Red Zeppi has really transformed thinking about food, and he has to be given credit for you know, really thinking about the local and radical ways um, and using, seeing potential for good eating and a lot of things that probably before him would not be considered food um, or edible. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why he deserves his his fame, but he has a very problematic relationship with Mexico. And um, when, you know, Noma, when he temporarily shut down Noma and kind of had a sabbatical, the place he went was Mexico and he um, had this, you know, kind of revelatory experience where he describes bouncing through the jungle in a Jeep and discovering mm-hmm. these ingredients that are underappreciated or unknown and bringing them back and using only flame, you know, to work with them. And this, this sort of elemental, almost heart of darkness kind of journey mm-hmm. into the jungle. And on the one hand, it's so transparently kind of a conquest narrative of, you know, kind of this colonial trope of, of the European explorer going into the jungle and discovering these indigenous ingredients and bringing them back to a European or Western audience. Right. But ironically, he talks about, you know, he tries to invert the narrative. He tries to say that his virginity is taken when he eats his first enfrijolada, which is a tortilla Yikes. based in, in uh, pureed black beans. And, you know, so he has this sort of idea of himself as being schooled. And and so he, you know, kind of does this sabbatical and then he opens a pop-up restaurant in Tulum, which is a kind of eco tourism, very high-end yoga and spa-oriented Caribbean community in, in the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Um, and he opens a restaurant. Well, he, he says he'll open a restaurant, and then he sells tickets on the internet that amount to approximately $600 before taxes and fees per person for dinner six months in advance. Wow. The tickets sell out within a week. You know, this is people buying tickets for dinner in December um, for a restaurant that won't open until May and will only be open for a month. People travel from all over the world, you know, to get these kind of coveted meals. And, you know, there were things that he he did and said to to try to sound ethical about it in terms of hiring local chefs and, you know, giving discounts to culinary students who wanted to eat at the restaurant. He hired local people. I'm sure he paid them decently, but, you know, where is the bulk of that $600 per person going, right? right. It's going through the cloud in December to Denmark, probably to a, to a bank that's not in Mexico to, you know, people who are not in Mexico. And he's, you know, ha- he has this sort of idea of, about discovery that is really insulting to the people to whom the food, this cu- cuisine uh, rightly belongs. And, you know, and he says things like if 
if people appreciated this, if people knew, you know, the magic of a, of a fresh tortilla, they would pay anything for it the way people are willing to pay for 60 or 80 euros for a plate of pasta if they're told the right story. And so he makes a claim to have, you know, the, the authority to tell the story of tortillas. Um, and that in itself is super problematic. Right. I mean, you talk about how these narratives sort of end up depoliticizing hunger and <laughs> structural violence yeah. in a way because yeah. it's, you know, like you said, it's about having the right values or having the right story as opposed to, you know, having access to land or or income. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, at the at the same time, people are are increasingly eating industrialized foods, processed foods, um, obviously, you know, can't afford uh, $600 for dinner. I definitely can't afford that um, to eat a a local heirloom, you know, organic uh, meal. And diet-related diseases are increasing really astronomically in Mexico. And, And I think another important takeaway of your book that we need to mention is about this myth of personal responsibility. Um, And, you know, I think it's it's an incredibly powerful myth that, um, you know, in in the words of of my friend Raj Patel, um, you know, it does a lot of thinking for us. Absolutely. You know, and yet, as you point out, research shows that personal behavior is is really not the main cause of of chronic disease at all. So um, why why is this myth so persistent? Because the corporations want it to be. (laughs) The corporations have invested, you know, millions of dollars. You know, since the 70s, they kind of teamed up before it was sort of every corporation for itself. And in the early 70s, they sort of made a concerted effort. My colleague, uh, Nick Freudenberg, documents this very well in his book, uh, Lethal But Legal. They made a very concerted effort to basically attack any regulations on any industry as an attack on all industries and Mm. all corporations. And so they sort of joined together to frame everything as kind of belonging to the realm of market choice and personal responsibility. So, for example, in the effort to get seatbelts in cars, it's not, you know, it's it's an impingement on freedom to, you know, for the government to tell people that they have to have some sort of safety mechanism in their cars. It Mm. sounds absurd to us today, but it was, you know, there was a personal freedom argument against seatbelts at one point. Um, (laughs) And we hear these same arguments being made today as far as soda and processed foods that, you know, people, that it's paternalistic to uh, regulate foods and beverages, that the market provides a diversity of products and people need to be responsible for what they consume and they need to consume responsibly and in moderation and exercise enough and there will be no public health problems. Um, But this overlooks so many of the, of the violent, the structurally violent changes that have occurred in the economy, the way that people, as we've been talking about, not only are pushed off the land, but they're also pushed into ways of life that are, that are precarious. Families are, are divided even if they don't migrate, they're divided by, you know, work opportunities. People have longer commutes, have to migrate very far distances within their own country. And so you don't see, you know, kind of a traditional extended family that sustain traditional ways of eating. It's a very labor intensive way mm-hmm. to prepare and consume food, very centered on family dynamics that require a certain amount of continuity in terms of family relationships. And we see all that sort of being torn asunder. And 
what do people have, you know, when they're commuting out, you know, six hours a day and have very little disposable income, you know, instant noodles suddenly become, you know, a very reasonable, convenient alternative. Um, They provide calories for, for someone who's working and needs you know, a quick shot of food um, in order to keep on working um, and keep on commuting. And so there's this dramatic shift. And then when Mexico begins to recognize that it has an epidemic, it begins to frame the rise in diabetes, which claims more lives every year than the drug war has in every year put together. Um, When they start to recognize this, they, you know, come up with a multi-sectoral massive government campaign to address it which has gotten a lot of praise from the right and the left. You know, very progressive people consider Mexico's soda tax to be one of the most, you know, one of the biggest wins for public health Mm -hmm. in the world. But what we see is this overall framing of personal responsibility of the blame being put on people who have diabetes, the blame being put on people who are overweight or obese to eat less and exercise more as a health solution. And what gets completely overlooked is the complete transformation of the food system, as well as issues like trauma, which have a a significant impact on the way that the body metabolizes sugar. Right. That's fascinating. These sorts of social transformations are not without cost. Um, We see a a dramatic correlation between diet-related illness, so quote-unquote diet-related illness, um, chronic diseases like diabetes, and histories of violence and abuse and and depression. And so we have to have a trauma-informed understanding of the Mm -hmm. economy and of these social and political decisions and see the ways that people, you know, may not be in need of education to tell them, you know, how to eat (laughs) healthfully, but maybe in need of a different economy and a different place in that economy where they can live sustainable lives with the people that they love. Right. You, you use a phrase that I, that I really love and that I may steal um, in the book, which is you <laughs> say um, human scale food system. And I think, mm. you know, what you're saying now really speaks to that. And it's like human beings, as human beings, we experience pain and loss and suffering and, and trauma and our food system needs to, to recognize and speak to that and our Absolutely. overall economy, of course. Absolutely. There's, there's so much, um, you know, we talk a lot about inequality and labor rights um, when we talk about food systems and food justice, but we have to really be attentive to, to the pain and the, and the trauma mm-hmm. that, that underlies that, right? right? When you have people um, experiencing tremendous dislocation, um, family separation, prolonged separation from family members through, you know, our broken immigration system detention and deportation, um, dislocation internally in Mexico. Even, you know, we could argue that the drug war is a result of, of NAFTA. If we, if we mm. had another couple of hours, I could, <laughs> I could help connect those dots. For the next um, episode in the series. That, <laughs> yeah, we can see that these instabilities radiate out and they affect every aspect of life. And so rather than, you know, wagging our fingers at people and telling them to, you know, go do Zumba, which is essentially what a lot of these government <laughs> policies are telling people to do, we need to look at what are the priorities of what is the imagination for development? How is development and prosperity being defined? And are people's interests being met? Right. So, okay. So there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. cu- cultural work, spiritual work, um, political, economic work. 
Um, and Absolutely. I guess, you know, that's a good uh, place to, to end on with, with my last question, which is, you know, about, about solutions. And, and you do actually mm-hmm. end your book on a, on a hopeful note, despite how depressing this, this <laughs> <laughs> picture is that you, that you paint. And so, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on the way forward? Um, and also I'd like you to, to talk a little bit about your cautioning against being enticed by market-based solutions that just end up promoting yeah. more consumerism versus real solutions that are actually based in, in justice. Absolutely. Well, one thing I don't want people to do is to stop eating tacos. So never fear. <laughs> I will never recommend that. Oh, thank God. Um, what a relief. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people, you know, clutch their pearls and say, don't tell me I can't eat my tacos. <laughs> eat, eat all the tacos, but we should ask ourselves, you know, who, who's preparing them? Right. <laughs> Where are the ingredients coming from? Whose stories are, are being told in, in the food that we're eating and whose stories are being omitted? And how can we seek out greater justice in the food system? And so there are a lot of ways to do that. One is to look to some of the movements that are in the United States and in Mexico in terms of people advocating for decolonized eating, mm. um, food sovereignty, the new president in Mexico is saying that Mexico needs to be food sovereign again. Right. We will see how that plays out, but that could have really important implications for the countryside actually seeing investment and seeing support for the first time, arguably since the Mexican Revolution. Wow. Um, and so we could see, you know, some dramatic shifts there and we'll see how that ripples out. Um, there was a reason that that Trump was trying to hustle to get the redo of NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0 or the youth MACA, as some mm-hmm. people are jokingly referring to the acronym USMCA. There was a reason he was hustling to get it signed on the last day, literally the last day of Enrique Peña Nieto's presidency, he spent in Argentina sitting next to Trump signing uh, the New Deal because Trump didn't want to face the new president who probably wouldn't have signed it. But we're going to see, even though, you know, in theory, it's been signed, it still needs to be ratified by the elected representatives in each country. And we will see if the Congresses go along with that. And so we do have a space, we have a space for articulating to our elected representatives what we would like to see in this deal and in future deals, a human-scaled vision of development that puts people at the center, that doesn't support commodity grain when we have it coming out of our ears, Mm -hmm. literally, but but supports, you know, small-scale growers and supports the kind of biodiversity, the rainbow that we want to see on our plate, not only for our health, right? Not only kale eating as a, as a kind of, um, you know, elitist <laughs> practice, but really as, as a way to reconnect to, to land and community in ways that, that are not about, you know, kind of current framings of health foodism, but really old ideas about what constitutes eating and preparing food in families and in communities. Well, that's that's great, and and that's a really great note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alicia. Likewise, and um, it was a pleasure reading your book and having you on Real Food Reads. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. You can join the book club and find out more about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org.